Jesus' name, amen. While I was preparing for this morning and preparing for an introduction, and, and I wanted to kind of point us to, uh, towards you know, a, a building, budding climax, and I was like, my favorite movie does a great job of, of, of kind of building tension, and then it all comes to a head. And I was like, this, uh, this good modern movie that turns out is 21 years old. So <clears throat> it seems like the good old days are... They're creeping up on even some of us who think we're a little younger. But Gladiator is one of my favorite movies. Has anyone else at least seen it? It doesn't have to be your favorite. We can forgive you for that. But it's one of my favorite movies. If you know it, and there, I mean, there's some great, like, almost pastoral lines in the beginning, right? Russell Crowe on his horse says, Gentlemen, the things we do in life echo into eternity. I mean, there's, there's some truth to that. We, we won't preach a gladiator sermon this morning, but we've got this general, the, the fiercest, the greatest general in the Roman army at the time. They're, they're, they're building the kingdom of Rome, and, and all this stuff is happening. We, we're given this little picture that, that the Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, who's, who's passing away, wants to turn the empire over to Maximus because he sees that, that the way things are going need to be changed, and the power needs to come out from one hand and go to a bunch of people, and that's the way forward. Well, the natural heir to the throne doesn't like that one bit, does he? If you know the movie, Commodus, he's unhappy about this, and he winds up actually murdering his father and then sending Maximus basically into exile. He's sold as a slave, and, and he's forced to compete uh, in the gladiator arena to make money for this man who owns him as a slave. And as Commodus uh, tries to puff himself up and take over the empire, he decides we're going to have this great big season of games in the Colosseum of Rome and all these little venues are getting called up to the big stage. And, and it turns out Maximus is going to be on there, some, on the big stage. There, his slaveholder was called up and, and they're going. And, and all of a sudden, you realize he's going to Rome where Commodus is. And in the first big win... The, the gladiators are supposed to salute the, the, the emperor, right? But he turns his back. Maximus turns his back. And Commodus is, of course, upset about this. And says, Gladiator, show your face. And he pulls off his mask. I could, this is a, it's a long movie. That's fantastic. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the tension rises, right? Maximus is not dead like Commodus thought he was. And so this, this vying for power happens, and then it, it builds, and it builds, and builds to the point where we're going to have the emperor and this general in the ring together, and they're going to fight, and it's going to be the, the great conclusion to the movie. It's 21 years old. I won't spoil it for you. But we just sense, you know, the, 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 the emotion from the, the characters, the, the soundtrack changes as you build and build and build towards this climax, and then the, the main thing happens. It's not a perfect transition, but here we are in John 17. Kind of the climax, coming up to the climax of John's gospel. The emotion has been ramping up. Jesus has been starting to be as clear as he's ever been with his disciples about what's about to happen. And the sort of the, the tension and the anticipation of what's coming is, is, is growing and growing. We've been looking at these last couple chapters of Jesus, what's called his farewell discourse, where, where he has taken his closest disciples and he's trying to prepare them as best he can for what's about to happen. He's spoken to them about his impending departure. I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
He's talked to them about betrayal and persecution and told them that is their future. He's called them to stand firm in their faith. He's promised that he would return even though he has to go. He's described what their future relationship will look with him because they're not going to be walking the countryside together very much longer. And in the last verses we saw last week, he has said, you're going to face all these things. It's not going to go well from a human perspective, but don't worry, I've taken over the world. I've overcome the world. You'll have peace, everlasting, eternal peace if you stand firm in your faith. And now we step into John 17 and we read that, that Jesus, he's out with his disciples and he kind of turns away from them a little bit and, and the gospel writer says, he looked up to heaven. He shifted his focus. It's not on his disciples anymore, but instead he's, he's looking up to the Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. When we hear these words, little alarm bells should go off in our mind because he's talked about the hour a bunch of times through the gospel, hasn't he? Way back in chapter 2, and if you remember, he was at the wedding. He, Jesus and his disciples were at the wedding in Cana, and his mom comes up to him and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Do you remember what he says to her? Dear woman, my hour hasn't come yet. And then again and again through the gospel, he says, it's not my time. The hour isn't here yet. It's coming. It's not here yet. But now he says, Father, the hour has come. This is the moment that Jesus has been anticipating his entire life. And this hour that he's about to uh, go through, that he has declared is now here, is, is even greater than anything his disciples could imagine. Now, this hour is, is more than just a culmination of his public ministry. But this hour that is now here is the fulfillment of a promise made way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God said, I will send a, a redeemer. I will send a rescuer to, to rescue humanity from their sin. This hour is going to be the hour when everything changes, when sinful people can once again enjoy relationship with their creator. This is the moment that all creation has been longing for and has been groaning for. This is the moment when life triumphs over death and when light conquers darkness. And at this moment, the hour has come. Jesus stops to pray. It's moments before his arrest. And Jesus pauses and gives us a look into all that he's accomplished, what he is about to accomplish, and what that means for humanity going forward. And look at how he starts to pray. Father, glorify your son. Now throughout the gospel, Jesus has declared himself to be God. We've said that many times as we've walked through this gospel. He's shown evidence of his divinity and the words he has spoken, the, the titles he has taken for himself, have made him equal with God. He's described himself as being equal with God. Even when John started writing in the prologue, he said, and the word was God. Jesus was God, and he took on flesh and walked among us. And so even though Jesus took on humanity and was fully human, he was still also fully God. And so he has every right to make this request. Father, glorify your son. He's the only one that can make this request. 
rightly. When we talk about the glory of God and, and glorifying God, it's important that we, we kind of come at that, recognizing there's, there's two pieces to it. When we talk about the glory of God, that's a noun. That's a thing. It's God's majesty. It's his splendor. Or uh, one way that helped me understand it was it's God, it's his display of his divine goodness. That's God's glory. It's a thing. It's a noun. But when we talk about God being glorified, that is the appropriate response to that goodness being displayed. That's how a, a world rightly responds to the glory of God, by glorifying him. So God is glorious whether we understand it or not. That thing cannot change. That's part of who he is. He is glorious. But we glorify God when we see his goodness and when we stand in it and then we worship him for it. And so when Jesus here prays to be glorified, it means he's asking for his goodness, like the goodness of God, to be seen and celebrated. And for God to answer that prayer means that the greatness of Jesus will need to be understood and acknowledged as well. Yet, if we know the story of John's gospel, we know what's right in front of Jesus, right? The next verses chapter 18, have him arrested and beaten and crucified. The cross is not just a sign of torture, but it's a sign of, of cursing. That's not glory going to a cross. And so for God to answer that prayer, knowing full well that the cross is right in front of Jesus, he will have to take someone rejected and cursed and somehow turn that curse into praise and that rejection into applause. How will he do that? Why? Well, I think we find the answer in verse 5, where Jesus asked to be glorified back into God's presence. The cross is not the end. The grave isn't the end of the story. Jesus asked to be glorified back to the place where he was before the world began. So Jesus' divine goodness will be vindicated through the resurrection the grave isn't the end of the story. And he will, uh, his divine goodness will be displayed and celebrated through his exaltation back to the place where he was before time began. We actually see a picture of this scene, this exaltation of Jesus in one of John's later writings. Look at Revelation 5, verse 12. We read, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. That's Jesus on the cross. Worthy is that one to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and, there's our word, glory and blessing. The Father will glorify Jesus, restoring him to his eternal position of glory. Yet, and again, I love this, it's beautiful. Look at why Jesus asked to be glorified. It wasn't that he said, finish the checklist, I've done everything that you asked me to do, so now I want what's mine, right? Kind of pay the bill at the, end of, at the end of all this. No, Jesus says, glorify me so I can glorify you. His whole life has been about pointing to, G to the Father, and his one final act says, I, I, I want this, I want to be glorified because it will shine even more glory on you. Jesus 
is the word. He's the revelation of who God is. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory. And so for us to look at Jesus is to perfectly see God's goodness displayed. And he's asking for that one more time here. In Jesus' prayer, he displays God's goodness to us by securing eternal life for those that belong to him. His willingness to go to the cross, conquering death and gaining eternal life for people reveals the character of God, the glory of God, and ignites praise to God for his goodness as well. And eternal life, it's not just living forever. It's not just extending the 80, however many years we have indefinitely. But look at verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus the Christ. One writer helps unpack this eternal life this way. He says, eternal life is a relationship with the everlasting God. It's not just the number of days that we have. Eternal life is forever delighting in the glory of God. It's seeing God and rejoicing forever in his presence. And maybe most significantly, Eternal life is how we were created to live in fellowship with the Creator. Jesus brings God glory by displaying the goodness of God and bringing rebellious creatures into an eternal relationship with that good God. And the way that this prayer gets answered is Jesus going to and through the cross. In that moment, when we see Jesus on the cross, both the perfect, holy justice of God and the perfect, holy love of God are on display. We see Jesus giving up everything for us so that we can see the goodness of God and be reunited in relationship with God and experience the glory of God. We also see that Jesus' number one priority, again, is about bringing the Father glory. And so if we are Jesus' followers or his apprentices and we're trying to look more like him, we're trying to be obedient followers, we're trying to be disciples, that should inspire and compel us to the same thing, that everything we do is for God's glory. Everything we are will find its purpose in worshiping God. Every detail of our lives is intended to reveal and celebrate the goodness of God. The mission that we're called to is to to share this gospel, to share the good news and help others to see the glory and experience the goodness of God. But Jesus' prayer doesn't stop there, does it? At verse 5. He doesn't say, glorify me. Okay, I'm ready. Let's do this. No, he actually turns and he prays for his disciples. This, This blows me away every time I read it, every time I look at it. Jesus loves these disciples so much. He's been with them for so long. He's he's taught them so many things. And even though they don't fully understand, we routinely see this, and they won't fully understand everything that's going on until Pentecost later, or uh, Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost after that. They're committed. They're, They're in. And so even though Jesus is staring at the cross, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He takes time to pray for them. And look how he starts. He says, listen, I have, I've manifested, I've, I've revealed your name to the people you gave me, to the ones you gave me. I've, I've shown them your goodness, God. He calls them 
the disciples called by God. There's, there's something, these guys have something from you and I have revealed your name to them. And he cries out to the one who called them. And he asks the Father now to keep them from falling away. It's only by the power of God at work in the disciples that they are, have been able to track with Jesus so far. It's the only, only by God's work in their lives that they are working to and, and sometimes obeying his commands and understanding who he is. And it's only by the work of God in their hearts that they will be able to fulfill this mission that Jesus is about to hand over to them. Several times in this chapter, the disciples are described as being given to Jesus by the Father. And we don't often dig too deep into to grammar lessons here, but sometimes it's important, and this is one of them. This verb Jesus uses, saying that they were given to him, is both a, a past tense, uh, or it's, it includes the past tense, but also the present. It's the perfect tense. Perfect tense, grammar. My grammar is not perfect, so... <clears throat> But the point is that this was something that happened in the past. God gave them to Jesus. But it's still happening. Day after day, he's still, they're still being given to Jesus. They're still hanging on to that identity. So God gave Jesus this specific group of people in the past, and they continue to be his. And they were chosen not by anything they had done, but by God for this mission. The Apostle Paul later in his uh, letter to the church at Ephesus said that, that the church there was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now you and I, we can't make any decisions before the foundation of the world, but God can do that. And God and Jesus did that. They chose people. They had a plan way back then and we're seeing that. You and I, by nature, we are rebels. We want to go our own way. We have rebelled against God. We do so probably every single day, probably more than every single day. We've turned from him and trusted in ourselves. And the only way that we can come back to him is if God does a work in our hearts and draws us to him. But this is the beauty of the gospel. That's exactly what God does. Through his goodness shown to us in Jesus, God replaces our hearts of stone that are cold and dead towards him and gives us a new heart of flesh and life that chases after him. When God does that work, we respond. And when we see here Jesus praying for his disciples, we see him saying that these disciples have responded to what you've called them to, Father. He says they've kept the Father's word. They received the word through Jesus' teaching, and they came to understand and believe. They kept, they received, they believed what God has said. So the responsibility for the disciples was to believe, but God did all the work. That belief is rooted in what God did and what God said. I like this analogy. Maybe it, it can help us sort of clarify the balance between what God does and what our responsibility is to that. Uh, say you arrived at church this morning with a, a, a young child, like young, 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 think 15, 18 months old, and you're dropping them off with the, the nursery that's it's not open in the service, but you hand them off to the nursery volunteer, and the, the volunteer asks the, your child a few questions. You look great. Did you have a bath this morning? Yes, the child says, yes, I had a bath. It looks like your tummy's full. I must have had a big breakfast. Did you have breakfast this morning? Did you make breakfast this morning? Yes, I had breakfast this morning. I love your outfit. Did you get dressed in those nice clothes? Yes, of course, I got dressed in those nice clothes, right? And the little one toddles off to play. Now, the, the child answered yes to all three questions, and there's truth to that. Took a bath, ate breakfast, put on clothes, but that's not the whole picture, is it? 
The parent's the one that ran the tub, scrubbed the dirt off the little one. The parent's the one that, that made breakfast, maybe even fed breakfast, definitely cleaned up after breakfast, if my parenting is any experience. The parent's the one that washed the clothes, laid them out, maybe even tried to get that big noggin through the neck hole so they can come to church, right? The, the parent did so much, the child responded. Jumped in the bath, ate the breakfast, maybe begrudgingly wore the clothes. The parent did the work, the child responded. Similarly, God does the work of calling us. All the work, all the important work. Our job is to respond. Jesus called these disciples, and they responded. Then Jesus moves forward in his prayer and begins to ask God to keep doing things in them, to, to keep them, and to keep doing things through them and for them. In this prayer for the disciples, Jesus is praying that the work that he has been doing, the work that Jesus has been doing so far, will continue through the disciples when he leaves. That's a, that's a massive handoff, isn't it? Look at verse 11. It says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, just like in the last chapter, if you remember from verse, uh, chapter 16, Jesus said to the disciples, uh, you know, you'll be thrown out of the synagogues. Uh, you'll, when people kill you, they'll think you're doing God's work. I haven't told you this yet because you didn't need to know it yet because I was with you. Similarly here, he's saying, I didn't need to ask the Father to keep them yet because I've been with them. Father, I've kept them so far. I've protected them. I've taken the hits for them so far. I, I've, I've sheltered them from this so far, but I'm going away and they're going to need help. So Father, help them. Protect them. He says, uh, I've manifested or revealed your name in verse 6. I've kept them in your name in verse 12. And Father, keep them in your name. Verse 11. The prayer is that the disciples would hold on to all that they have learned and seen Jesus do and, and, and experienced about who God is through being with Jesus. There's a beautiful thing that happens when the disciples do that, when they're kept and when they embrace the truth about God's name, who he is, his character that we opened our service with, that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, righteous, just, all the, th all the things. As the disciples embrace that truth, they're drawn into a new community of faith that Jesus has described for them as well. A new community called the church. And the admission requirement to the church, the, the unifying truth of the church, is belief in the word of God. What's more, and this is amazing, it's a little crazy, I was going to, it's amazing, is that in this community, the intended level of unity is supposed to reflect the unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The unity that the Godhead has experienced from all eternity past and will into the future is supposed to be modeled and reflected by his church. Do we need God's help for that? My goodness. My goodness. One of the things that has been um, such a gift uh, for me and for us over these past four or so years that I've been at Trinity, is the unity that we have found among the people. And we'll dig into unity a little bit more next week when we kind of finish up the prayer, but I pray that we would continue to, to strive for that, for unity around God's word and God's mission. 
That doesn't mean that we're striving for uniformity, that everyone looks the same, dresses the same, talks the same, agrees on everything. We're not looking for that. That's not what we're even called to here, I don't think. It's never that here at Trinity we've, we've ever disagreed on anything or had differences of opinions. It's, it's not even that there's never been conflict in the last four years. We've, we've had all of those things. But the Lord has been gracious, and I've seen such a unity of, of a group of people trying to pull in the same direction, focusing on the Word of God, trying to be faithful to what God has called this group of believers in this time, in this place to do, to build his kingdom. And that's not something we should take for granted. We can't. Especially over the last year and a half or so, I've heard and, and seen of, of churches that have, have fought and split and closed or fired staff because of differing opinions on things like masks, capacity limitations, online church, and if it hasn't happened yet, it will soon, probably vaccines. None of that, be careful, is ultimately important, right? And I know in our group we have opinions from one end of the spectrum to the other on all of those things. Masks, vaccines, online church, uh, whatever. But I pray that wherever you are on that spectrum, wherever I am on that spectrum, that we would continue to pray with and for one another, that we would treat one another with the same mercy and love and grace that Jesus gives us. And as we wrestle with these decisions, because they are big, these are, these are big deals in our culture right now, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us so that we stay focused on working together for him, building his kingdom, so we can draw more people to him. This unity that Jesus prays for is centered around the truth about who God is and what he has revealed to us through his word, through Jesus and through scripture as well. Another helpful unity analogy I came across this week. Um, this past summer we had the Olympics, and I don't know how much Olympics you watched. I didn't catch a whole lot, but one of the things I enjoy watching a little bit, again, when it comes on, is the rowing especially the bigger boats, right? I mean, Canada used to be a real powerhouse in the rowing. I remember Silk and Lauman as the, as the Canadian rower. Probably just dated myself again uh, sometime, some Olympics ago. But think about the eight-man boats, right? You've got eight people all in that boat together, all pulling together towards one goal. If one guy decides, chair one decides, you know what, I'm stronger than chair three, I'm just going to pull harder and get us there faster. It doesn't work. If they start to work under their own power, it doesn't happen. In fact, they even have someone sitting on the boat, there for the ride, driving them to unity, right? Stroke, stroke, stroke. Work together, pull harder. And when they do that, united, at the same time, when those paddles hit the water, at the same time, with the same force, with the same gusto, whatever, man, that boat just flies through the water. Unity doesn't come from everyone doing their own thing as hard as they can, but when we focus and submit on a single voice. As the disciples submit to the voice of God, they grow more and more of the same mind. Their thoughts, their desires, their intentions begin to mirror God's, and they experience a unity that is unfamiliar anywhere else in the world. 
Look what also comes out of that unity from the text. They experience the joy of Jesus. Look at verse 13. I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. What a picture of God's grace all of this is. He sends Jesus to reveal truth to us. He does a work in the disciples' heart to draw them to him and so that they would embrace truth. This truth that they've embraced uh, brings about the joy of Jesus in their lives. And then God keeps them from abandoning that truth so that they can have that eternal joy through Jesus. God does the work from start to finish, and yet the disciples receive the joy completed in them. We can't talk about this journey of faith, of course, without mentioning the risks, and Jesus does too. There's a a real danger to hanging on to the truth of the word of God. The disciples all experienced it. We still experience it today. And in Jesus' prayer here, he reflects what he's just finished telling the disciples, that the world will hate them because they hold on to the truth. Jesus prays that God would keep them and protect them from the evil one, the one that wants to steal and kill and destroy that eternal joy that is promised them. One of the things um, I hope I'm learning, I think I'm learning more and more, is that there's not much, if anything, in our world that is morally neutral. Either the, the, the things we're doing, the, the, the media we're taking in, the, the way we spend our time, all those things, they're either drawing us towards God, driving us towards God, or maybe at best having us sit still while we drift backwards, or at worst they're actually driving us away from God. Now I'm not in the group that says the devil's behind every bush, and when I stub my toe walking down the aisle this morning, I was like, ah, Satan got me with the chair. I'm not there. Like, I don't hear that from me. But I am learning that we're listening in contested. We're living in contested space. There's a battle for our, our souls. We can't neglect that. That's why Paul would later tell that same Ephesian church in chapter 6, put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Then look at how he describes the life of faith in the next verse. For our struggle... It's not for our pleasure cruise to eternal joy. It's not for our walk of whatever. It's our struggle, our wrestle, our fight. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. I know what it is a lot easier to give in to that struggle sometimes than it is to keep fighting. It is a lot easier to just stop wrestling, just be pinned, and just go with the way of the world. But Jesus prayed that the Father would keep and protect the disciples, and we need to keep doing the same for ourselves, for our church, for for all who know Jesus. The last thing in this prayer that Jesus asked for the disciples is sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify is a word... We don't often use a ton anymore, maybe, but uh, it means to set them apart for something special. It's like the fine china that you have in the cabinet that comes out at Easter and Christmas and maybe Thanksgiving if you're having guests over. That dish set is sanctified, set apart, right? Again, the analogy is maybe not perfect, but it's there. 
These disciples, they've been set apart for a specific task. And Jesus asks again, sanctify them, set them apart in your truth. This group of Jesus followers was chosen to fulfill a specific role of, in God's plan, launching the church out. History and tradition tell us that the group that was just in this room with Jesus took his message from Jerusalem to as far north and west as Rome, if not farther, to as far east as India, and to the south into Africa. These, these normal people, fishermen, tax collectors, laborers, they were the foundation of the church. And their role was to stay as those set-apart witnesses while remaining in the world. Jesus didn't say, keep them and protect them by fruiting them off into a desert enclave by themselves until they come be with us in heaven. No, he said, keep them there, but keep them in the truth. Let them take this message. Standing up for the truth of God's word in a world that's increasingly hostile to it is not easy. And so, again, we pray this for ourselves. As we impact the world, as we, as we are in the world, I think there's three ways we can respond to a, a truth like this too. We can try to isolate ourselves from the world. Say, okay, if I don't hang out with the wrong people and just hang out in this little bubble of people here that I know believe the same thing as me, do the same things as me, all this, I'm good. I'll be good. I'll be kept in the word because I'm only around people who agree with me. The problem is when we do that, we actually abandon God's mission when he said, go and make disciples. We can be tempted to try to inoculate ourselves, believing that, well, I've believed in Jesus, and so I am now immune to temptation. I'm immune to worldliness. I would just go wherever we want, do whatever we want, and it's good. God will forgive me for it. But this so often leads us to blur the lines between living for Jesus and living in the world. It minimizes the Bible's teaching on sin and repentance, and there's a lot of teaching on it. And it actually means we disregard God's truth. I think there's a third and better way. We need to work to insulate ourselves. This is daily putting a focus on the gospel that protects us from temptation as we seek to live out the gospel. Again, here's a, a way to think about it. Take this analogy for what it's worth. It's starting to cool off a little bit in the mountains. We can watch the snow line coming down. There's a bit of snow on the ground here. It's even falling right now. How will we choose to deal with winter? So I'm a winter world. Okay, that's where we're going here. Now we can isolate ourselves. We can say, forget it. I'm locking the doors on the house. I'm staying in my nice warm house until the flowers bloom. Done. Forget that. But boy, will we miss out on so much beauty and joy and things that happen through that season, right? We can also inoculate ourselves and just say, it's not that cold, it's not that cold, it's not that cold. This tends to be where high schoolers land, as you've seen them walking around, right? It's not that cold, shorts, flip-flops, no problem. But if we do that, we'll find ourselves in the hospital being treated for pneumonia and hypothermia, frostbite, all the things. It is cold. Or we can insulate ourselves. Get out the coats, get out the toques, get out the mitts, get out the underlayers, get out the snow, all the layers. Put them all on. And then venture out into the cold to be a part of what is a long and beautiful season. In our faith, we insulate ourselves by wrapping ourselves in the truth of the word. We look to the word first 
for our identity, for truth, for wisdom. We cling to the prayers that we read in the, in the Bible of the apostles, of the, of the psalmist, of all those things. We cling to the promises of Jesus that we would be guarded by his truth and set apart for his work. And as we clothe ourselves in that, then we go out into winter. Then we go out in the world. And that insulation keeps those worldly ideas of who we should be, what gender looks like, what life should look like, what the things we should strive for, all those things, we keep ourselves insulated from that because we believe in God's truth and God's word. See, our mission as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, is to engage with the world. That's not just a job for pastors, elders, missionaries, and other professionals, but it's a job for every follower to take Jesus' life into every single place, every neighborhood, every classroom, every office, every coffee shop, every grocery store. And as we do that, insulated and protected by the truth of Jesus' word, empowered by the Holy Spirit living in us, driven to the unity of the church community, we will find Jesus' own joy fulfilled in us and flowing out of us to a world around us that needs joy. Let me pray. Jesus, again, I, I thank you for this, this window into your prayer life with the Father. We do uh, often in the Gospels read that you, you slipped away to pray. You slipped away to, to work on your relationship, to be in community with God the Father. And here we have just a taste of what that looked like. Jesus, thank you that, that you came and you lived a perfect life, one that, that made it right and possible and even good that you would say, Father, glorify me so I can glorify you. I thank you that you took the time to pray for your disciples and, and, and I hope, I think that we can take those same prayers on us. Thank you that you, you took them and you kept them and that you revealed the glory of God to them. Thank you that you have, have set them apart and sent them on mission. That you've set us apart and sent us on mission. Thank you that you pray that the Father would keep them. Again, I, I ask that you would remind us to pray that for each other and one another more often than we already do. So we'd be kept by your truth, kept by your word, so that we can go out into a world that needs to hear from you and declare your truth.